you feeling it? Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. We have a great show. We're super excited about today's show. Yeah. Yes. It's a very rare It's a very show. special show. Very special show. Um, unique. Unique. We have two guests. We have a guest host with us that's going to stick around throughout the throughout the hour and then we have uh, another ho guest coming in on the latter half of the uh, the, the show so um, welcome Lynn yeah um, she is Lynn is a PhD student in the Department of Genetics so uh, she's gonna be helping us with this uh, with this topic so we're, we're really excited for uh, for today's show and to get us started um, just want to mention before you, we get started that you can reach us here on studio at 573-882-8262 and you can also text us at that same number or find us on our Facebook page where we are the Bay Electron so before we get into yeah. uh, Lynn's research I have a question for you, Jackie. What do you have for me? Tomorrow is one of my favorite days of the year. I guess of every fourth year. Uh-huh. Um, the leap year. <laughs> leap year, yeah. Tomorrow, it's one of those days where it's uh, leap day. February has an extra day. Yeah. February 29th. And it's called leap day because, I don't know, we guess because we skip it. Every other year, every other, <laughs> but well, not every other year. Every four. Every yeah, kind of. Maybe every non-leap year. Every <laughs> leap year. Yeah, I don't. I I should have googled why we call it a leap year. Yeah, I didn't think of the history of the <laughs> terminology. But the reason we have a, a leap day or a leap year is science. Uh huh. Well, science of sorts. It's science. Well, it is math, so I guess it's science. <laughs> Also STEM. science. Also science. Yes, STEM. <laughs> science, technology, engineering, and math. Okay. So the reason why, so we know that we have 365 days in a year. In most years. In most years. Um, and every four years, we have an extra day. So you have 366 days. And this extra day, it's necessary to keep our calendars working in order. So... The solar calendar, which is what most people use um, in the world, relies on the sun to tell us how long a year is and when, e when each of the four seasons begin. So, you know, we have, uh, we have all of this, this fun stuff and whatnot. Um, and then there's a very specific measure that they use uh, for one year described as a tropical year. And this is defined at the time between one spring equinox and the next being 365 days, five hours, 48 minutes, and 45 seconds. So you can round up this to 365 and a quarter of a day, right? Right. So if you did math real quick, you can say quarter every four. If I multiply a quarter times four, that's an extra day. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That's my extra leap day. So that's when we have leap years. However, it's not as simple as you may think. If we kept, so let's say that we kept every year fixed at 365 days. The months would eventually move with the sun until in about 750 years, June would fall in the middle of winter. So that would so be, that would be that is unacceptable. really cold that, summer. Right. <laughs> And you would think, okay, we probably started doing this until recently when we got more technology and we got interested in science, but not really. This actually started a long, long time ago. So the current length of each month and therefore the length of a year goes back to the Roman dictator Julius Caesar. And this is called the Julian calendar. 
in this Julian calendar. <laughs> He's full of himself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was an emperor, a dictator. Why That's wouldn't true. you, right? Um, so this included leap years, leap days, but instead they occurred every three years. So when his, hmm. uh, when the next emperor, Augustus, he corrected this mistake of every three years and put it onto fourth. <clears throat> and celebrated this. <laughs> this is so funny. If, if you think someone is full of themselves, um, <laughs> he decided to celebrate his power on understanding of celestial movements <laughs> through monuments, such as the giant sundial of Augustus, which once stood on the Campus Martus in Rome. So he was like, wow. listen, I made this. I'm so smart. So, I deserve a statue. So, and then... Literally thought that they were like gods on Earth. So I'm not too surprised they were yeah, named calendars true. or days after themselves. Yeah. Or I mean, entire months. That's why like July. July. Or yeah. August. Yeah, August. <laughs> <laughs> and so on and so forth. So, of course, this is a little bit shorter than three. So the Jillian calendar was not as accurate as you would hope. So in 1582... Pope Gregory corrected this mistake in his Gregorian calendar. And he added a leap year, a leap day every four years. And he also opted to lose three days every 400 years. So it's getting a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Now, if, you know, in a more modern area now, uh, all of this included because they added days, they didn't, and then they remove, and then leap, leap days and stuff. Um, so in the modern result of all of this, it resulted in adding an extra day every four years. Mm -hmm. And then to adjust for the uneven precision of the fraction, every hundred years, we also skip this rule and drop the extra day. Then... Every 400 years, we skip the skipping rule and have an extra day again. So this is like ridiculous. That's it's the science of calendars. You need a PhD to figure out what, what day it is. So, so here's, here's why. For example, in 2000, the year 2000, it was a leap year since it was divisible by four. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's also divisible by 400. So the dropping of the extra day every hundred years was not carried out. This long-term solution creates an average length of a year of 365.2425 days. And the required target needs to be 365.2422 days. Oh, so it just didn't, didn't quite <laughs> so get there. So it's 0. 0.004 days off. Wow. <laughs> uh, so this makes more complicated um, to have one day over a period of just under 4,000 years. Uh, so this is the reason this slight error in quotation marks error. It's one of the reasons why they include leap seconds at the end of June and December. However, this is not done in a regular fashion. And the calendars and when we add a day, when we skip a day, when we don't have a leap year, when we have a leap year and all this stuff, is set for by the deviation of the calendar that is set by the International Earth Rotation and Reference Systems Service. Wow. The most powerful people <laughs> on planet Earth. Real quick before we move on, just a fun little fact. People who are born on February 29th are known as leapers or leaplings. Leaplings. Oh, I know, that's the cutest Aww. name. <laughs> My little leapling. <laughs> Aw. Well. Yeah. Thank you. That is fascinating and math-filled and, and very disturbing. Uh, and it's, and it's <laughs> rare, right? Yeah. It's, if, you, if you ever, I have a friend whose birthday is today and she, every year people ask her, imagine if we were born on the 29th. She's like, first off, when I was born, it was not a leap year. Oh, second of all. <laughs> so that would have been impressive. <laughs> that would have been impressive. And second of all, she keeps aging. People that are born on February 29th, so babies that are going to be born tomorrow, they still age every... Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> every every year. So, uh, but, but they are rare. That's they true. They are rare. They speaking, are rare. Speaking of rare things, um, we, uh, if you've listened to the show in the past, uh, I'd like to say thanks. 
Um, Absolutely. The three of us you might recognize are uh, Jackie, Anahita, and myself. I'm Adam. And um, we have decided to invite uh, a special guest this week because we don't have quite the expertise in uh, in this particular rare issue that our guest does. In fact, uh, I would say she's uh, quite familiar with it. So we've invited a genetics graduate student, uh, Ling Ngo, mm-hmm. to join us for uh, a few minutes to talk about February 29th, which is Rare Disease Day. Mm-hmm. Um, Closer. Get um. Yeah. So, so is so, it all? It, this rare disease day is not always February 29th. I just want to clarify that it's always the last day of February. It right? is the last day of February. Now I can hear myself. Okay. There we go. Thanks for having me and thanks for speaking so highly of me. Um, thanks I try for to coming. provide all the information I know. Um. So, have any question for me? Yeah. So first of all, I would like to know what constitutes a rare as a rare disease. All right. So a rare disease in the United States since 1983, um, a disease is qualified to be a rare disease if it affects fewer or up to 200,000 people. Um, so that's one single disease. However, there's about 7,000 known rare disease. So altogether, wow. they affect about 25 million to 30 million Americans alone. Um, that means you are likely to encounter one out of 10 people that you meet on the street is likely to have a rare disease. Wow. Um, that means one in a full packed elevator mm-hmm. or one in a full, four in a full bus. Um, it's pretty common for someone to have a rare disease, but for someone to have a particular rare disease, it's really rare. So it really depends on how you talk about the rareness of um, the diseases here. Mm -hmm. So could you, uh, I guess real quick, we kind of jumped over this. What are you specifically studying? Um, I know that you're in genetics, but are are you specifically studying rare diseases or is it just as a result of being in genetics that you it's have... It's really a- just a result of being in genetics. Okay. Um, I also teach genetic in society, mm-hmm. which we cover quite a bit about this. Um, so rare diseases are not just topic, interesting topic for research. It's also very real affecting people out there. And because my class, uh, my students in my classes are mostly pre-meds or people interested in being working in health professions or careers, um, it is important for them to be exposed to patients' voice and how lives are like living with a rare disease. Mm-hmm. Um, also, kind of became an activist in rare disease, um, raising awareness about these rare diseases. So if you're interested in learning more about rare diseases, there is several organizations that are dedicated for um, such information that you can find on the internet. Um, you can look on the website of the NIH, um, mm-hmm. if you just Google rare disease, frequently asked questions, there should be something pop up very uh, quite readily. Um, there's also a, a website called raredisease.org, and that website is run year-round all the time, not just on rare disease day, which is the last day of February. Mm-hmm. And they have activists and they have, they are the place where all the genetic counselor and patients and organizations gather to provide support and information about rare diseases. So while we were preparing for the show, um, you mentioned, you, you mentioned that we, we were asking about numbers. And so you mentioned uh, what is a, re- a rare disease, day, uh, a rare disease. And uh, can you help us with with that? Like, what is like in numbers? What constitutes a rare disease? And you can you can you also mention the difference between a disease and a infectious disease? infectious disease? Yeah, yeah. So we we covered the two hundred thousand number and the seven thousand number mm-hmm. of diseases, but that infectious versus non infectious disease day. What? Not day. Not day. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. So usually rare disease have to have a genetic component to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is, rare disease affected so few people uh, at a sort of, you know, individual basis. If you think about one rare disease at a time, if you don't think about them collectively, but think about just one rare disease at a time, they affected so few people that 
it's really hard to get money into research. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get money into developing treatments for these people, and it's um, and therefore a lot of rare diseases actually don't don't have a known causes. Hmm. Um, we do know that about 80% of all the rare diseases that we know, which is 7,000 of them, have a, re- a genetic component. Um, the the rest of the 20%, we don't know, but I, I can hazard a guess that um, we I can bet um, that we would be able to find some genetic component if we put the money into doing the research. Um, Infectious disease are not considered a rare disease as long as you found an outbreak. That's not a rare disease. Mm. Um, if you can find a microbiome components to it, that's not a rare disease. Usually it has to be a genetic disorder. Um, therefore, the treatment is a little more complicated. Um, the cure, most of the time there's no cure for a rare disease unless you think about gene therapy or gene editing. Um, So people who live with rare disease actually have to just live with it. Um, And um, this year theme of rare disease day is patient's voice. And, um, you know, people are affected by rare disease are affected in different ways because all the rare diseases are very different from each other. But they are all feeling, they are all having very complicated um, medical situation. Sometimes insurance don't cover these. Sometimes the doctors have to treat them under the table. Um, they feel lonely and isolated and labeled and unsupported. And and therefore, we have this rare disease day at least one time, one day of a year dedicated to support these people who have to live with these very unfortunate, but very real, rare situations. So would you say that having a rare disease It's kind of a synonym of not having a cure for your disease or even treatment. Or do you think that nowadays we have at least some sort of treatment for for these diseases? The figure in terms of treatment or cure for rare diseases are really not that optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I mentioned several times already, we have about 7,000 known rare diseases. Only about 1% of those rare diseases have an FDA-approved treatment. So that's about 400 of them. Um, it's a really low number. Um, yeah. And so we are, all the organizations that dedicated for rare disease treatment and advocates um, are active, actively seeking for sponsors and researchers and everyone they can call out to develop treatments and research to help treat and cure rare disease. We are also thinking about treatments here. Um, cures even further uh, down the way. So as long as we have some treatment to help with patients with rare disease, two thirds of them are children. A lot of these are, um, these patients are not healthy enough to survive until their adulthood, which is really sad. Um, so hopefully we can find some way to improve their life. And um, yeah, so the picture is not very optimistic. Yeah. But we're working on that. Collectively, it's such a huge number of people and such a such a wide phenomenon. But individually, mm-hmm. a lot of these folks who have some sort of uh, genetic condition or rare disease uh, are pretty isolated. In fact, I, I think you, you mentioned some time ago that a lot of these uh, diseases, even though they're named and described, there's no organization nationally for people mm-hmm. who for support for people who suffer from these conditions. That's absolutely correct. Only 50% of all the rare diseases that known to us have a organization that dedicated to for uh, for supporting, for advocating, for treatment and for for patient support. Um, so the rest of the 4000 rare diseases that didn't really have an organization, um, the patients and the family who live with them have to be on their own sailing to find treatments and support. And rare disease diseases are not only for the U.S., but when we were doing our research, found that, um, you know, there are curse in everywhere. Mm-hmm. And and I found this really strange, well, not strange, but uh, as Lynn mentioned, most of the rare diseases are genetic. And so you would think that they would be prevalent in certain areas or with certain types of, of, of people. And um, here on Wikipedia, it says that about 40 rare diseases have a far higher prevalence in Finland. Um, and they call this the Finnish heritage disease. And I think that mm. just speaks to it being 
just genetic. Mm -hmm. That is genetic. And, yeah. And so um, as soon as you have a genetic disorder, it's um, talking evolutionarily. Um, it is likely that it could have a foul effect. So um, when human immigrate from one place to another in historical time, um, some population might carry a rare allele or mutation with them, and that mutation become more prevalent in the population. So for example, in the Middle East or um, in uh, the Mediterranean areas, usually we have a higher frequency of sickle cell disease or of thalassemia or other hemoglobin disorders because that mutations, even though it caused a, a hemoglobin disorder that, that's really devastating, it's also kind of give the carrier or the people who carry the mutation some protection against malaria, which is pretty prevalent um, in those areas of the world. Oh. So that was one of the reasons that rare disease could be more common in one area or the other. But worldwide, we know that it's affect all the populations, all humans in the world. Um, the reason we talk about the U.S. a lot is that we've done better research here and statistics here, so we have better number. We also have better um, network of associations and organizations that support and do research on rare diseases. Um, we do have um, a good network, a decent network of these organizations that support rare diseases um, throughout all over the world, um, but mostly in more like in the first word, if you might use that word. Um, in developing countries, we don't really have that much attention to rare diseases, and it's very hard for people to find information they need and find the support they need. So this year's... Um Rare Disease Day theme, the global theme, is patient voice. Mm -hmm. So, which I think is a great, great theme. It's focused on having the actual patients or the people who have rare diseases voicing what their needs are and hoping to raise awareness of these diseases and spur a change. Mm -hmm. how, how do you think that us who are kind of aware but not necessarily super aware of of all of this can contribute to the movement of spreading out the voice or raising the voice for those who are you know very few with that disease but you know if you collectively get more people involved then you can make you can have a louder voice um i think just being aware of it would probably help a lot already um i myself live with a rare disease and uh Living with the rare disease, I was very lucky that I don't really have a very devastating condition. Um, but it was it was enough to make me feel a little different. And I don't necessarily like the feeling of being different, being isolated, being labeled as having a rare disease. Yes, I know I do have a rare disease, but I do like to be supported. Um, so I think all the patients with rare disease would feel very much supported and encouraged if they know that people around them are um, understanding um, and and support them in this very hard war of fighting with the radius that they was very unfortunate to be born with. Um, also, we all scientists, right? Or we interested in doing science and advocating science. So the research behind rare disease or fighting treatment or just trying to understand rare diseases need a lot more support so that it become a little more helpful and a little more um, applicable to the patients who live with the rare diseases. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, mm -hmm. a great statement that we should probably keep our eye on the ball a little bit uh, when it comes to some of, uh, some of the work we're, we're aiming towards that um, a lot of this work that we do has the potential to to genuinely help people if it's directed in the right in the right fashion so yeah i think Absolutely. it's yeah i think it's 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 great and i mean we didn't we hadn't heard i mean adam you probably may have heard it because you're more bio than us but anahita and i have not hadn't heard about this until we started preparing for the show right and and you know it's like okay uh we should we should do that so um We're going to go on our first musical break, and then we'll be right back with our second guest of the show. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCU 88.1 FM. 
Oh, my goodness. All right. Uh, we are back. Um, before we move on uh, to our next guest, we did want to say thanks very much to Ling uh, for coming on and telling us about Rare Disease Day. If yeah. you want more information about that, they have uh, a website, www.raredeseaseday.us, where you can find out all sorts of great information, and a Facebook page under the name Rare Disease Day. So uh, please check those out if you have uh some interest in learning a little bit more. So, thanks. Awesome. And then we have now calling uh, Ricky Lewis. Dr. R Lewis, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, there we go. Yay. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you here. And Hello. Hi, I'm here. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Technology. Yes. Um, all right. So... I guess we can we can start with uh, if you could live uh, give us a little bit of your background, um, what you what you study and what you're currently doing now. I have a PhD in genetics, which I got a very long time ago by making fruits that had legs growing out of their heads, and not wanting to become a fly doctor, I began a <laughs> career writing textbooks and magazine articles and. Still writing textbooks 30 years later. I have a blog, DNA Science, at Public Library of Science. I've published a book with St. Martin's Press on what will likely be the first approved gene therapy in the U.S. I write for Rare Disease Reports, several other journals, and I'm a genetic counselor. So I've been pretty much fascinated with the rare diseases for several decades now. Wow. So um, you didn't find that the big money was in fly doctoring then, I, I guess? No, it oh. wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll have to change my career plans uh, as we speak. Then, so. um, Dr. Lewis, where, if you don't mind, did you get your uh, PhD from? From Indiana University in Bloomington. Okay. It's a great school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, well... Uh, Sorry, so yeah, please, please <laughs> wait, wait. save me from myself. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a little bit about um, what is a rare disease. Right. Um, Lynn uh, talked about that. Um, what do you What do you think? Um, why Why should we care about? So Lynn gave us her point of view, um, and I want to ask the same question to you. Um, why should we care? and invest in uh, rare disease research? Well, there's two reasons. One is humanitarian, just because so many people are suffering. And what I do in my writing, especially in my blog, is I tell the stories of real people, real children, children who were doomed and what they're, what they're going through. Mm -hmm. But the second reason is that solving a problem on the rare diseases often translates into helping with more common diseases. The classic example is um, the statin drugs that millions and millions of people take to lower their cholesterol. Those drugs wouldn't have happened unless there had been research on the one in a million people who have familial hypercholesterolemia. There's a little girl named Hannah who I write about all the time, and she's got an incredibly rare disease. I think 74 people in the whole world have been identified with it. She will be receiving gene therapy any day now into her spinal cord. It's the first gene therapy in the spinal cord, and if that works, it will help possibly the people who have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Wow. Third example is autism. That's not one condition. It's probably hundreds, or if not thousands, of conditions. And I did a blog post just this past week on a little boy in the Netherlands who has the triad of autism, developmental delay, and intellectual disability, and there are two people in the world with his mutation. So by studying the rare diseases, we learn in ways that can help the masses. So that's why I think it's so important. Could you give me a little bit more information on what gene therapy is, what it what it entails, really. Okay, gene therapy is an approach that introduces a working copy of a gene into the cells that are affected, the body part that's affected, in a person who has a mutation. Um, my book is about the people, especially a little boy, who are cured of blindness in just days with their gene therapy. Now, a lot of people have been talking about gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9. That's a completely different technology that doesn't just add a gene, it swaps in a gene and takes out the bad one. It's very different. It's not going to be in clinical trials for years, mm -hmm. whereas gene therapy has been in clinical trials since 1990, 
and the first FDA approval will probably be in 2017, if not this year. Yeah, so it uh, it's probably going to be quite a while before that particular level is uh, is pu available for public uh, use then. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, it's going to happen within a year. Oh. The gene therapy is for a form of hereditary blindness. And there are several other conditions that clinical trials have been going on for years. And I think once the first one is approved, it will see a wave of approvals. But they're all pretty rare diseases. Okay. And would it be safe to say that these are, these are a type of gene therapy that um, does not involve changing the germline? No, it doesn't involve the germline at all. It's an injection into the child's eye. Right. Okay. So it's purely a local within right. a certain tissue kind of thing. People aren't really doing that germline thing. The, the hype in the media it drives me insane. It would make you think that science fiction is here now, and the actual researchers are being incredibly conservative about it. And I, there was a paper from China about a, a germline manipulation, but that only went on for a few days. And I don't think it's anything we need to worry about quite yet, although we need to get, you know, regulations sort of, we have to start talking about the possibility of germline manipulation, but that's been a possibility with other biotechnologies as well, so that's just my personal opinion on it. So, uh, speaking speaking of that, um, I know that there was, at the end of last year, or it might have been the, the beginning of this year, where a board, a whole bunch of scientists came together to Washington, D.C., and they pretty much met for the entire weekend and said, okay, these are the, quote, regulations or things that we expect to happen in order for, you know, um, CRISPR or any of this gene editing mechanisms to take place. Uh, what do you what do you think of, of that outcome? Because they said that, no germ line manipulation until it was shown that it was safe and that, um, at least for now, it wouldn't be carried on onto a pregnancy. I don't think anyone's going to be doing germ line manipulation. It's, it's, it's easy to do, but there's technical details that the media just, just doesn't talk about. I mean, when you do a germ line manipulation in a different species of mammal, you have to set up crosses to get two recessive genes to express themselves. There are developmental steps that are involved that are just not feasible for a human. So, I don't know, I try to do my blog posts on uses of CRISPR that sort of make more sense than the, than the germline manipulation. I think people mm -hmm. are kind of jumping the gun and panicking over it. Is there a concern that because people are jumping the gun that restrictions will be put into place that may hinder the future of research? Um, I, I don't know about that. Most of the people working on CRISPR are working on model organisms or human cells growing in the lab, and I can't imagine that those would be restricted. So I, I don't really know. I don't do the research myself, so I don't really you know, feel I can speak about the fear there. Yeah. But there's a huge disconnect between the panic that I see in the media and the, the bioethicists mm -hmm. and what people are actually publishing about. So, so earlier you mentioned that you are a genetic counselor. Mm -hmm. um, what is a genetic counselor? Uh, how do you play into that role? And how does one get a genetic counselor? You ask your doctor for a referral. Uh, most, I'm not trained exactly the way I should be. The, the best genetic counselors have a master's degree in genetic counseling. Mine's a PhD in, in genetics, so it's not quite the same thing. But I've been doing it since, I think, 1984. A genetic counselor is someone who will sit down and explain the results of genetic tests or what tests you should take to a, to a particular patient. I do my work at a large OBGYN practice. And a genetic counselor spends an hour or more several times with the patient compared to the 10 minutes you'd get with a lot of MDs. Plus, um, a lot of MDs don't have a lot of training in genetics, and nowadays the genetic counselors and the people who have the PhD MDs in genetics are more the authorities on that. So the medical community is kind of having to catch up a little bit. So a genetic counselor sort of combines expertise in the, in the science and the biology with psychology. So we help patients to choose tests, and we interpret the results afterwards. So as a genetic counselor, um, what kind of interactions do you usually have with the medical community, like with doctors and primary care doctors, and with the patients? And do you have to juggle between the two sides? 
Well, I don't see that many patients. I did back in the 1980s and the 1990s, but patients are so well-educated now that, they, frankly, they don't need me. They could learn everything they need to know on the Internet, and, in fact, a lot of genetic counseling is now done on the phone. So I will just work with the particular specialist. For example, it's a, it's a BRCA1 mm-hmm. patient. I will notice from somebody's family history whether they're likely to have a familial cancer syndrome, and then I would communicate with the physician, the breast surgeon, whoever, the oncologist is taking care of them to make sure, you know, they have the appropriate tests. Right. But mostly I'm a writer. That's what I do 99% of the time. Uh, what what got you into writing about rare diseases and genetic disorders? Well, um, it happened, I was in graduate school. I was close to getting my Ph.D., and I started writing articles for the student newspaper and then for the local newspaper. It's kind of a funny story. I'd written a series of articles about Huntington's disease, and I got a fan letter. This was in the newspaper. I got a fan letter, read the letter, put it in my back pocket, washed the pants, and then a month later I hauled this letter out of my back pocket, and I noticed that it was signed Marjorie Guthrie, and it took my brain about an hour to figure out who that was. <laughs> She's the uh, second wife of Woody Guthrie, who was the father of Arlo Guthrie, and Woody Guthrie is the face of Huntington's disease. He's mm-hmm. the most famous person who's had it. So Marjorie encouraged me to go into science writing because she said people needed to hear about rare diseases, which were called orphan diseases back mm-hmm. then. So I actually went to meet her at Arlo's recording studio, and I met Arlo Guthrie, and he shook my hand, and he told me to go into science writing so I could tell people about Huntington's disease. And all day I've been writing my blog post for rare disease today, tomorrow, about Huntington's disease. So it's kind of, you know, followed me through my career. I think that's really great of you to dedicate your time and career into writing and advocating for rare diseases. You just said a few minutes ago that you think patients nowadays can find all the information they need off the internet. So what is your role as a communicator um, who's, you know, spread the information about rare diseases? Who exactly is your audience? That's, I have a lot of audiences. My textbooks tend to be non-science majors in college. Um, the book on gene therapy is whoever my publisher convinced to buy the book, but it's mostly the rare disease people who buy that book. And my blog post for uh, Public Library of Science, I'm writing mostly for other scientists and graduate students. And I know that because they just um, had a big survey and they found out that that's who reads what I write. But I try to tell stories of people, and I've become really close friends with all these people I've met mostly over the Internet, and my Facebook feed is... I think it's about 50% rare disease families and 50% cat videos. <laughs> I, I can't even Sounds talk to my, my children Facebook. anymore. <laughs> so I was reading one of your um, recent blog posts, and it it really touched me. It was 14 things that cost the same as gene therapy clinical trials. Um, right. So could you kind of, I know it's hard to summarize, but could you kind of summarize for our listeners out there uh, what you covered in that article? Okay, that wasn't one of the emotional tearjerker ones, but um, two weekends ago, I went to Martha's Vineyard with one of my Facebook friends. I met her for the first time, Laura King Edwards. Laura has a 17-year-old sister who has Batten disease and will probably not live past age age 20 or so. It's very sad, and um, Laura was, was running a race there to, to raise awareness, and I started to think about what it costs to fund a phase one clinical trial for maybe with six kids in it for rare disease, mm-hmm. and it's $5 million. So all these politicians were blathering on TV. It was one of the Republican debates, and I started to think, $5 million. What are the stupid ways that people spend $5 million? And frankly, I think one of them is on elections. Um, the salaries <laughs> of famous people, what does Tom Cruise get for a, What does Coldplay earn for two nights? You know, I, I, so I thought of all these metrics of stupid things to spend $5 million dollars on. And mm-hmm. then I contacted one of my rare disease friends, Kristen Schneider-Smedley, who has two boys who are blind. Mm-hmm. And I, I know she does tremendous fundraising. So I said, Kristen, give me a list of what it would cost, what, what you'd have to do to get $5 million. dollars. And she responded with this incredibly detailed list of things like 1,600 lemonade stands for six years and, and things at that level. Wow. So there's this huge disconnect between Absolutely. incredible waste of millions of dollars on those housewife shows and the voice coaches and all these really oh stupid things and these poor, sick kids who desperately need funding to get a clinical trial going so they don't die. 
Mm-hmm. And that just struck me as just being so bizarre that it just kind of flowed out of my brain and that became the blog post the last week. Well, we we appear to have kind of a collective misallocation of, uh, of our resources, our priorities are, uh, right. are all kinds wrong there. But um, I, I might uh, change tracks uh, uh, briefly okay. to ask about um, uh, a different thing, which is we're all um, PhD students here at, at University of Missouri, and um, we're wondering what kind of advice would you give to young scientists like ourselves uh, and advocates for science that um, that we would like to do something to to put this out there a little bit better. To put what out there better, the rare disease? Yeah, yeah, uh, just knowledge about rare diseases and, and making progress in that. Um, are you all PhDs in biology or genetics or everything? Um, Jackie and I are in chemistry. Okay. Um, just um, Don't just hole up in your lab and not see people. So if your research involves any disease at all, get involved with the families. And actually, families are now funding a lot of the research, so it's, it's good all around. Contribute to blogs, post, post answers on, if you see an article in your field in the New York Times and there's hype or there's an error, leave a comment because it helps people. I write for Medscape very often, and the comments are the most interesting parts when you have all the medical people talking back and forth. Mm-hmm. So leaving comments can you know, help to educate people and get involved in community events, things like that. So, um, can you, can you, um, so you mentioned Huntington's disease, which is, I think, something that we kind of know, what we've heard a little bit about, but what are some of the, it's a, it's a kind of familiar Mm -hmm. one, um, what are other rare diseases that, that you think are important just because of the population, the, the amount of people that, that have them? Um, you mentioned, you know, the six kids that need this treatment and, and, you know, they're, it's, it's very necessary. Uh, but what are other rare diseases that are a little bit more in population? Um, and, and how do they, how do they develop? I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Uh, like just an example of, or two of, of rare diseases that are maybe not as commonly known, but still have a big population of patients? Well, if they're rare, they don't have a big population of patients. That's why I'm confused. I think, uh, but... Being more common amongst the rare? Like right, yeah. Well, one would be cystic fibrosis, and that's, that's a great example of where the research dollars really matter. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's been amazing in funding research. I mean, that gene, oh, when was it discovered? I think it was 1993. And there's now... Um, a drug available called Kaleidico is a couple of others that are kind of miracle drugs. They take a misfolded protein that causes the disease and they, they refold it the correct way so it can function. And um, one of my um, favorite Facebook groups is Kaleidico Miracles where you can read about families and how their kids have gotten better from mm-hmm. taking this drug. Not everyone who has CF can take the drug. It's, they're constantly approving new mutations on whom it works, but that's a really good example of more, one of the more common ones. And thanks to the research dollars, a lot of people are getting treated now. It is, it is very expensive, but um, the, the funders, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, constantly pump back money into funding the research. So a lot of people are getting the, you know, the drug at a, at a decent price. And it's, it's making a huge difference. It, you can learn funny things on, on Facebook, too. Um, I didn't know this, but... Um, the parents, one of the ways they discovered that the disease, that the, that the new drug was working is that the odor of their children's flatulence changed. I mean, oh. you would think that, but yeah. it's a disease that affects the, uh, the pancreas, it affects in the intestines. So that's one of the signs that the disease is, that the drug is working in addition to, you know, the respiratory symptoms, symptoms getting better. Another uh, really common one of the, the heat, more common amongst the rare, the hemophilias, there have been several gene therapy trials going on for several years, and they work really well. So I think within five years, certainly within 10, we're going to see gene therapies for some of the clotting disorders, and they're actually, you know, I call my book The Forever Fix because if you have a gene therapy, it, it's, it's 
hate to use the word cure, but it's a one-time treatment that should mm-hmm. get rid of the symptoms. So I, I have a question um, about, I guess it's about the classification of diseases as rare diseases. So these are tend to be genetic, as Lynn pointed out. Yeah. So if there was a case of a rare disease and it was in one individual and it never pops up again after that individual's life, is it taken off the list or is it just kind of always kept on the radar of this may pop up again? That is a great question. Um, there's something, it's a technique going on called exome sequencing. Mm-hmm. And the exome is the part, well, you must know the exome is the part of the genome that encodes the protein. And a lot of these little kids who have what we call undiagnosed diseases, that doctors don't recognize the combination of symptoms at all. If you do the exome sequence of these kids, a lot of times researchers now can discover what their mutations are. So I don't think there really are going to be any of those single cases after we get more exome sequencing done. And most importantly, it shows it works on the cases where you have a kid with a disease and the symptoms seem like it's a syndrome, like it could be inherited, but the parents don't carry any known diseases. If you sequence the exome of the child, you can find a dominant new mutation that just happened in the sperm or the egg that became that child. So it comes out of nowhere. There's no family history, so the disease is genetic, but it's not inherited. And exome sequencing is enabling us to do that. The exome sequencing, I was at a conference about three years ago when a company, I went because they had a free lunch, but the company put on a demonstration and they showed a diagnosis done in three minutes just by clever uses of databases of exome sequences, whereas many of these families, especially the older ones, it used to take five to seven years to get a diagnosis of a sick kid, and that became known as the diagnostic odyssey. It's still called that. So the ability to sequence exomes and genomes is enabling physicians to diagnose kids who have unusual conditions, atypical presentations of known conditions. It's, it's really quite revolutionary. And the more of us who have our exomes and genomes sequenced, the more information will be out there in the databases so that physicians will have more to tap into, you know, coming pretty soon. What I'm really picking... What I'm really picking up from what you're saying, though, is that this this effort of um, addressing these rare diseases really goes across a lot of sciences. Yeah, it really does. I can see that as being one of the uh, complications. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> President um, Obama, in his State of the Union address in January 2015, started the Precision Medicine Initiative, and the White House had a meeting last Thursday of top people in genetics, and this is part of the Precision Medicine Initiative is a cohort of a million individuals who are going to have their genome sequenced, and that information is being compared to all sorts of other information like geography, uh, weather patterns, environmental exposures, all those Fitbits that everybody wears. People are keeping track of their own physiology, the microbiome. <laughs> this huge project to figure out what makes us sick, what, what makes us well. So this and, is kind of a combination of bioinformatics yes. and everything else. Yep, yep. It's huge. It's really huge. That's great. And it's one of the really cool things about bioinformatics that technology is enabling us to do this now yes. that can really make a difference. Right. It's just, it's just amazing how all these different technologies and tools are, are coming together now. But it didn't even make the news on Thursday. <laughs> I was so frustrated. <laughs> That's that priorities. Priorities. Again, right. Yeah. It was trumped, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Uh, are there any last things that you want to say? I know you mentioned you have a book. Uh, is there a, where can, if people are more interested in learning about this, um, where can they can they find your book? On Amazon, it's called The Forever Fix, Gene Therapy, and the Boy Who Saved It. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thank you. All right, and we're going to go on a short musical break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCU 88.1 FM. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron on KCU 88.1 FM. We're talking about Rare Disease Day, and I'm going to you wanted to mention. I have one last rarity, which is rare earth metals. So these are elements. Um, 
It's a set of 17 chemical elements. Uh, it's the 15 lanthanides and scandium and yttrium. So if you're looking at a periodic table, down at the bottom, there are some neglected elements, I would say. They're not a part of the main table. So 15 of those, as well as two others in the main table. And um, these rare earth metals or rare earth elements are actually, uh, interestingly enough, relatively plentiful in the crust. And actually the 25th most abundant element in the earth's crust is one of these rare earth metals. That seems like false advertising. It is false advertising. So rare in this case was uh, an archaic word. It was a mistranslation for difficult. Oh. And rare earth metals were called difficult. This because, is Ryan from oh, Portugal, the man, and you're listening to KCOU 88.1. They're called difficult because they <laughs> tend to be found, they tend to be grouped together or like mixed up amongst each other, and it was difficult to separate them from one another. Oh, wow. Etymology contributing to science. Yeah. So that's my little the, tidbit. The language nerd and he is very happy about this, this fact. Nice. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I, despite having studied chemistry for a really long time, I did not know <laughs> which ones were the rare metals. Oh, I hate that I shouldn't say this on air. I'm going to drop this. I knew the lanthanides no. were on it, but the yttrium. I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> I didn't know yttrium was one. <gasps> Okay, well, we end on a very low note. I'm Thank sorry. you, Anahita. <laughs> <laughs> no. We're not going to end on a low note. Lynn, thank you very much for being here with us. Thanks uh, for having me. Thank you to Dr. Lewis for joining us via phone. Uh, Rare Disease Day. Hopefully you hear a little bit more about it tomorrow. Um, and if not, you can check out um, online. There's also a hashtag. Stuff. Yeah. Oh, hashtag okay. There you go. Rare Disease Day. Yeah. Twitter, Facebook, and all mm -hmm. that social media stuff. Imagine using Twitter for good. Yeah, you could probably <laughs> use it to find an event near you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're signing off. You were listening to The Big Electron. Have a good night.